Today is Wednesday, the 20th of June, and this is episode 3030 of the Survival Podcast. I've got a special guest coming back, Robert Baxley. I'll have him on in just a moment. If you're thinking that name sounds familiar, we had him on to talk about zoning issues in his area of Colorado a couple months ago. And when we had him on, I'm like, I think I knew the name before the app came in, and I realized he was behind a website called Radical Gastronomy. He's all into cooking. You know me, I'm a foodie. So I'm like, dude, we need to bring you back on and talk permaculture and cooking instead of all this legal stuff and all, you know, it was an important show to do, but it's exciting to talk about food, in my opinion, uh, and permaculture. You put the two together, it's going to be a great episode, and we'll have him on in just a moment. Before we do, let's go ahead and hear from our sponsors of the day. Sponsor today, number one today, is uh, John Pugliano with the Wealth Studying Podcast. Guys, I have worked with John. Almost since I first met him, I first met him in Salt Lake City, Utah in 2010 at a prepper convention. He came up and he introduced himself to me. We talked for just a little bit, and uh, then we got in touch later after that. I've had him on the show many times as a guest. Of course, he's a member of our expert council. He has his own podcast called The Wealth Studying Podcast, where you can learn to grow your wealth like a garden. If you have not yet subscribed to John and The Wealth Studying Podcast, do so. And remember, John's not just an investment manager. John is one of us. He is a prepper. He's a ham radio operator, and he's great with money. So you got a good trifecta there. And when you're sending me questions for him, remember that too. Like he can answer your questions, of course, about investing in wealth management and things like that. But the other thing he can answer your questions about is ham radio stuff as well. And he actually really digs getting some questions on that. Next up, uh, butcherbox.com. Look, how would you like to have a great big giant box of meat show up perfectly delivered to your house once a month. With ButcherBox, you can do that. They are a great, and I mean a great sponsor of this show. Uh, They have made many offers I've been able to get done for MSB members that is not available to the general public. Uh, That's worked out really well. And they do a discount for MSB members. That is $10 a box a month on a monthly product, $120 a year on my $50 a year membership. On this one supporter alone, Check them out today at ButcherBox.com. And remember, if you're an MSB member, make sure you get your discount. We are literally, at this point, the only partner they have that has a recurring discount. Nobody else gets that. We've been with them since the very beginning when nobody knew who they were. They haven't forgot that. They know we've helped them build their company, so they remain loyal to the audience that's been loyal to them. With that, I want to welcome our special guest, Robert Baxley. Robert, welcome back to the Survival Podcast. Thanks, Jack. It's great to be here. And I remember, I'm supposed to call you Bob, but uh, (laughs) I guess... However, it doesn't matter to me. So, hey, just real quick, for people who didn't catch the first episode, tell us a little bit about your backstory. How did you end up living out in the the part of Colorado you live in, get involved with permaculture, all of that? What's your backstory? Well, you know, I spent 22 years in the restaurant industry from the time I was 15 years old. And I, uh, I worked in a variety of high-end establishments like the Salishan Lodge in Glen Eden Beach, Oregon, which at that time was the only five-star, five-diamond in the Pacific Northwest. And uh, I was at the end of the Anasazi in Santa Fe at its very beginning. And after 
a lot of uh, vocational training, I ended up in a situation where I was able to buy my own restaurant in Pagosa Springs, Colorado, and ran that for about 12 years. I was called the Greenhouse Restaurant and Bar. And that uh, that venture, although, you know, having a 12-year run in the restaurant business is is fairly exceptional, it ended with, you know, 9-11 happened, and then we had the fires of 02, and I went through a divorce and struggled with alcoholism and switched from that career to uh, basically natural building uh, with a buddy of mine from high school. And when I uh, met my uh, second wife, we, you know, were experiencing that 2007, 2008 crash, which, of course, is around the time that I discovered the survival podcast and realized that uh, it would be best and smartest for us to not only start some prepping behavior, but move into a situation where we could provide our own food sources. And so going down the permaculture rabbit holes and the homesteading rabbit holes, we started, you know, we were in a patio home. So we just had this little tiny backyard and I actually built a vertical growing wall and started growing some herbs in that. And then a series of other situations and rentals that I was able to farm a little bit. And we bought some property high in the mountains and ran into zoning problems and building code problems over there. Sold that, bought a five acre farm out on the plains. And then the opportunity to uh, purchase the land that we're on now over on the western slope came up. And it was just too nice of a piece to pass up on. So we you know, essentially flipped farms and I would renovate the farmhouse, install a permaculture system and increase the equity that way. And we were able to get into this situation essentially without debt. And so that's uh, that's where we stand today. That's a nice place to be without debt on a property. That's that's about yeah. as good as it gets. Um is is that really then what brought you out of the kitchen was making that career shift and got you into the garden? I know like today that's become a thing. A lot of restaurants have small gardens attached and things like that. And they, it seems like a natural fit, obviously, permaculture, organic gardening, et cetera, with cooking. Uh, but was there motivation beyond just the economics of it? Well, you know, the the restaurant game is in many ways a young man's game. You know, it's a high stress, high hours. If you want to succeed at it, you really have to apply a lot. And it's very difficult to uh, run a very high level kitchen and also produce food. Sure. Both are, are very time consuming. And so, you know, for me, growing food is sort of a manifestation of my gourmet fetishism, if you will. <laughs> if you want to have the best ingredients, it doesn't get any better than the things that you can just walk out your door with your shoes off and cut in the garden and bring in. You're never going to have a higher nutrient or flavor or visual value than if you're cutting it as you're cooking it. Yeah, that's true. And it's even true when you're doing non, you know, like not going to the extreme or whatever, just like right before I got you on, I made myself a breakfast taco out of an egg and cheese wrap that I made and, uh, farm fresh duck eggs, the sausages from last fall's workshop from Tim Love. But I was like, right when I was going to make it, I'm like, wait a minute, 
what am I doing? And I ran out to the garden, grabbed a couple jalapenos, right. chopped them up and put them in there. And so they were literally two minutes from, from being on the bush yep. to being in the pan. Yep. And there just really isn't another way to do that. Like, I don't care how well the product was produced. If it has to travel at all, it won't be that when you cook with it. Right. And that's the thing. Without having to pick up a bunch of arcane culinary skills, boy, if you can just switch from dry herbs to fresh herbs, for mm. example, and have lettuce that is actually crisp and not wilty, that can do a great deal to improve your the quality of your cooking just in having fresh ingredients. Yeah, absolutely. And then like technique comes into that too, because if you have fresh herbs and then you're throwing them into something, you're going to cook for an hour and a half before you eat it. You've kind of wasted the fact that you had fresh herbs. So right. I think there's a lot right of technique. The end. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of technique that goes with maximizing um, well, these, like, these really fresh ingredients. If I'm going to make soup or something like that, you know, I'll have whatever bones I'm going to use for the stock and, you know, my mirepoix, my carrots, onion, celery. And what I'll do is strip all the leaves off the herb stems, put the stems. There you go. In the long cook, save yep. the herbs, plating the soup, you know. I do that with cilantro, especially all the time, because cilantro, you throw cilantro leaf in something, you get nothing. But those stems right. are just dynamite with flavor. You bet. And uh, you separate your leaf and stem, like you said, and then you go fresh with the leaf and, and you cook in flavor with the stem. Those are the types of things that, you know, people like me learn from guys like you by just being a student <laughs> of this shit for two decades and wanting sure. to be a better cook. You bet. Um, what, what do your growing techniques or how do your growing techniques impact the quality of the food you cook? Like, how do those two things go together? Well, you know, I'm a... I, uh, a, a big fan of the work of Elaine Ingham at mm -hmm. Colorado State University and her, uh, you know, soil food web classes and that sort of thing. And through that work, we have discovered that if you have a very, you know, biodiverse, active, healthy soil food web where you have mycorrhizal fungi and nematodes and a good array of bacteria and all the things working in the soil, well, all of those things serve to bring micronutrients in the form of minerals and things like that to the plant roots. And you end up having a far greater expression of the genetic potential of each plant if you're operating in that sort of a no-till low input uh, system. So in my uh, garden beds, I essentially do on bed, on ground raised beds in similar to the back to Eden style or the Richard Perkins style, where essentially it's a pile of compost with wood chips around it. And in our arid climate, having all that mulch is super important. And then, you know, I basically will add the compost of the beginning of the season, and then I'll brew compost tea and, you know, I make biochar and add it to the compost every year. And so just really try to focus on soil health hmm. and that translates into brighter flavors, stronger fragrances, sharper colors. And there is some research that suggests that 
if you take a sap measurement of your garden plants, if you can get a bricks level, a sugar level of 12, then that plant is impervious to disease and unpalatable to pests and, you know, eliminates a lot of the garden problems you would have. I'm not quite there yet with the soil health on this property, but every yeah. year it gets a little better. You know, I you're making me think back many years ago when I lived in Arkansas. One of my old business partners, Neil Franklin, came up to visit, and uh, we were cooking steaks or something like that. I'm like, well, we need a side. So I went out to a couple of my beds, pulled a couple, three carrots out, chopped them up, butter, sage, foil on the grill. That was it. Yeah. Salt, salt, pepper, yeah. butter, sage. That's it. And uh, he eats, he's like, well, what did you do? So I tell him. Uh-huh. And it's like four weeks later, I forgot that we even did this. And I get a phone call. And, and you know, the Brits, like they have like probably probably 10 words we consider cuss words. They don't even consider cuss words. You know, like right, shit is right. like, that's not a cuss word. It's just like a use of the language. And right, you, right. You son of a bitch. You know what? Why did you, what are you hiding from me? And I have no <laughs> idea what he's talking about. None. And I'm like, what? He goes, the carrots, the effing carrots, you know, the bloody right. effing carrots. And I'm like, what about the carrots? What else did you put on them? And I'm like, <laughs> Neil, butter, sage, salt, pepper. That's right. it. That's it. I made them. They don't taste anything like what you did. I'm like, yeah. you put them in full? You put them on the grill? He goes, yeah. I'm like, what do you mean? They, don't, they just don't taste right. I'm like, you understand that I cooked you a carrot pulled out of my beds with my compost that carrot was cooked five minutes after I pulled it out of bed. Where'd you get your carrots? Right. I bought the I bought organic. I'm like, it doesn't matter. Like <laughs> I didn't hide any, and he couldn't believe. It took him a second to believe me. Right. He's like, you must have something you put on there that you didn't tell me about. I'm like, butter, sage, salt, pepper, carrots. That's it. And it's amazing to me when you when you grow high quality produce and you cook it fresh. The flavor difference to me is massive, you know, and, right. you know, it was a winter carrot, too. So it's cold weather, but sure, like it was as good as it could get. Right. And that's why I cooked them for him. And right. it, it, it is pretty like and that's part of the whole seasonality, too. Right. Like that carrot well, honestly wouldn't taste as good in June as it did, like in late November. Right. And so that's, you know, the the whole idea behind radical gastronomy is, OK, you can if you want a bowl of chicken soup. You can open up that pull tab on the on the Campbells and add equal parts water, and theoretically that is chicken soup. <laughs> or you can grow that carrot and select a variety that's got better flavor and nutrients. You know, maybe you're you're running an atomic red carrot or something like that. Yeah. And you've got a a, a sweet Italian coin onion that you're going to use, and you know a, a pink. Uh, Chinese parse or uh, Chinese celery. Yeah. And so, you know, you can get into varietals that don't exist in the general market. They're going to have better flavor. They don't necessarily store and transport as well, but everything yeah. in the grocery store is going to be geared toward appearance and transportability for a long time. Yeah. People that run so farms you that sell it in that space, right? They right. they do it to make money. They don't do it because they love you. Right. They don't do it because you're going to make chicken soup and they want you to feel better because you have a cold. Right. They do it to make money. So the way they make right. money is they sell a product that can be shipped and moves off the shelf because it looks right to the consumer. That's that's it. Exactly right. And this organic carrot that he's getting over there, 
Well, undoubtedly, it's grown in soil that is tilled yeah. and therefore does not have a fungal profile at all. Yeah. And so there's no hyphae bringing calcium and manganese and whatever of the 58 plus other micronutrients that carrot needs to it. And yeah. so it may not have been sprayed with GIC, but it has not been grown for optimal health and flavor. No, no the one he was for durability. Yeah, the ones he was comparing it to, like we did these, uh, they looked like regular conventional raised beds, but we took an excavator. Right. We right. dug about four feet down, and they were two and a half foot, they were 30 inches of fungal infused dead wood that we gathered because up there we lived in the woods and we had trees right. everywhere. So there was 30 inches of fungal infused broken down lumber underneath some of the best compost you could get. Like you bet. I don't care what you do with a shippable product. You're not doing that. It's no, it, it, no. the type no. of thing. And the fungal is, I think one of the biggest things is, is life in the soil as a whole, but the fungal life is, it's a dramatic difference. I mean, I've trialed fungal inoculation, two beds side by side, and the difference in flavor, texture, durability, drought tolerance, all of it goes up. Right. Right. Yeah, it can't be overstated. And then, you know, back to our, our chicken soup. Yeah. If you then, you know, raise a Cornish cross, but you also have dairy cows mm -hmm. and you're skimming cream, you're making butter and you've got all this leftover skim milk, well, you soak the grain for, you know, that chicken in the skim milk. Milk-fed, pasture-raised poultry is not at all the same as no. the one in the grocery store that's lived inside, inhaling particulate fecal matter of 50,000 other birds every breath of its life, never seeing the sunlight, and dunked in bleach before it's put in that plastic bag to go to your grocery store. Yeah. It's a different thing. Yeah. And, you know, so it, my idea is like, okay, it doesn't have to be the fanciest to be the best. It has to be intentional and thoughtful. And we get into the stacking of functions that permaculture teaches us. It's like, well, now you've got systems that feed into systems that feed into systems all pointed toward higher quality and my method for for like a chicken soup is typically take that whole bird take the skin off render that down and then use that in conjunction with the cultured butter i make to saute all the vegetables and brown the mm -hmm. chicken and all of that so getting all the flavor from that fat and keeping it inside of of the dish use those bones to make the stock roast them up first and and then the fresh vegetables and adding them at such a time that you're going to have well-cooked carrots and celery and, and and onions. But if you're adding potatoes, wait until just the end and then the herbs sure. at the very end of that. And a simple dish of chicken soup now all of a sudden is this magical medicine. Yeah, agreed. And, and then like what you're describing there, too, is, well, how to make a soup. Because most people that make soup don't know how to make a soup. You throw everything in the water and you boil it. And you go, it was so easy. It also tastes like crap. And it tastes right. like crap because there was no technique. Right. And, and that's what I try to explain to people. Like, technique over over recipe. Because right. I can give you everything that I put into something. And you could even have the same quality ingredients. If you, if you remove the technique, the order, 
the way things are done and you make right. it by boiling a bunch of crap, you're going to get a bunch of old crap, even yeah. though it was good crap that you started with. Sure, sure. Well, and I mean, simple things like if you're going to make that that broth, you're going to make this bone broth for your soup. If you just chuck everything in that pot and crank it up to high and boil the snot out of it for a few hours, it's going to be cloudy. It's, you know, the flavors are going to be muted. If instead you take those bones and roast them slow until they get a little bit of color on them and then deglaze the roasting pan with some white wine, get all those flavory bits off the bottom of that pan, get all of that in your pot, saute your carrots, onion, celery in that same fat, add that, add good water, you know, not the junk that comes out of the tap, good water to it, your herb stems, a little peppercorn, and and just bring it up to a simmer and hold it right there because the proteins are going to coagulate and change and, and cause those floaty little flecks in it and let it run for three hours or so for a chicken broth and give it the time to get all of the collagen and all of the minerals out of the bones. Well, now you've got something that you could put just about anything into that broth and you're going to be a rock star. Yeah. You could put, yeah, literally anything you could throw, you know, you could make a vegetable soup, fennel and green beans and throw that in there. It's going to taste amazing. I mean, like, and and that's, that's why I've done so many shows on cooking and I've, always like almost every show I do on cooking, let's make a soup. Yeah. Cause once you can make a soup, like then you can do anything really. Right. And, and you can also make a soup out of anything. So you have some stuff on hand that has to be available. And it's not like, well, I go need to make a, a recipe on how to do a, a pork soup. You just make soup of pork. Right. Like it, it's, it, it is that simple and it's hard to get through to people. What, what do you, what do you mainly produce on your property? Well, so right now I run two cow-calf pairs of Jersey cows. And I like the Jersey, you know, once again, this is not about the maximum profit possible on the farm. If I wanted that, then I'd run a Holstein that puts out eight gallons of 4% milk every day. Instead, I'm running two Jerseys that will give me three gallons each of 12 percent oh wow and so the the quality of the butter fat in it the flavor of the milk vastly superior and so i've got that to make all of the dairy things that i'm going to make cheese butter buttermilk sour cream yogurt cottage cheese on and on and on all those things and then of course also have those byproducts to recirculate into the system and, and return the surplus to the pigs and everything else. So I've got the the two mama cows, one of them threw a uh, A2A2 Jersey heifer this spring. The other one jumped the fence and got in with the neighbor's black Angus herd. So I've got a Jangus up there that's half Angus, half Jersey, and I'll run her for about um, 18 months and then freezer camp and we'll have a couple years of beef off of her. So we're producing all of our dairy needs and all of our red meat needs uh, at this point. That way we run a flock of about 20 laying hens and, you know, mostly selected for shell color, you know, and mm-hmm. also, you know, 
cold, hardy birds that lay well and, uh, you know, survive the winters up here. And then I uh, run pigs on a feeder model. So one of my buddies up the valley, he has a fairly substantial hog operation up there, most of which that uh, ends up going into fermented meat. His place has a, a nice big cellar. So he's making the prosciuttos and the capicolos and the salamis and the specks and all that sort of stuff up there. So rather than carry a boar on my operation, I'll just buy a couple of feeder pigs every year from him. So, you know, bacon notwithstanding, but so I have a place for all of the things like the intestines from 75 meat birds. I can just feed to the pigs and simplify my my waste streams that way so we're we got the two pigs right now we typically run about 150 cornish cross on pasture every year in two different rounds so okay. I've got two um eight by ten chicken tractors very simple two by six frame on the ground um cattle panel bent over them chicken wire over that and a tarp and gotcha. so I just do daily moves with them and feed them the milk soaked grain. And so we'll run a batch early and a batch late, try not to have them out on pasture during the heat of the summer. And for livestock, that's about where we are right now. There are a few things that we've tried and, you know, you've got to be site specific like ducks. Unfortunately, we can't do ducks and the the you know ironic thing about that is that i've got 12 acres of beaver marsh on this property oh, wow but i can't run ducks because it's riparian af out there so i've got coyotes and muskrats and raccoons and mink and foxes yeah. and everything else that's hanging out in there and these domestic duck breeds just aren't savvy enough to survive it. No, no, they're not. They're not. A duck is an amazing animal for agility in water. Right. Like, even the big dopey ducks, what they can do in water is just fascinating. They are clumsy oafs on the land. They run. Oh, yeah. I mean, I can, if I need to catch a duck, it's not even hard. Like catching a chicken's hard. Catching a duck. Yeah. You just kind of follow them, and they waddle along, and eventually, you know, a few minutes of that, and they kind of wear out, and you grab them. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I could, I could see that being a problem. That sucks, too, because, man, what a great – what a great – Yeah, job. I mean, it's like you think, oh, I'm gonna, I'm never empty in another kiddie pool as long as I live. I'll just yeah. get all these ducks and stuff them out there, and it'll be yeah. great. Now, of course, we have a very extensive wild duck population. Sure. Because we've got the right environment for it. So I've got, you know, if I want to eat duck, it's right there. I can I can go get it. But a duck you know, calls some six shot and a few decoys. That's right. <laughs> that's right. Well, and they're they're pretty used to us. And I mean, really, oh, yeah. I don't I don't need a blind or the decoys or anything. No, nah, <laughs> ammo. Yeah. Yeah. As long as you've got some yeah. 12 gauge birdshot, you're all right. You know. Yeah. How's yeah. uh how does agorism factor into what you do? That I've noticed that about you. You are kind of a fan of the whole agorist philosophy. Yeah. And, you know, I, the idea of, of counter economics as a political tool is very important. You know, I don't feel like any of the things that I view as a problem in the world 
have a political solution in terms of, of the options afforded us and voting and going to your town council meetings and those sorts of things, I think that a more direct approach of, well, you know, if the if they're providing the money that they want us to use and then taxing it at every exchange point, really to minimize the amount of power accessible to the government by not using their money seems far more effective to me. So we have the good fortune of living in this valley that is filled with a bunch of top quality producers. So Mm -hmm. not only do we have all kinds of organic and permaculture and regenerative farms in the valley where, you know, everyone has their specialty and you don't have to do everything. So, like I said, my buddy's over there making prosciutto. And if I can trade butter for prosciutto, then great. And as the relationships in a community like this develop and get richer over time, well, that barter economy starts to shift to a gift economy. Mm. And now the game is not how do I get the upper hand and win in a negotiation, it becomes, how can I give the better gift? And it becomes sort of a, a one-upsmanship. Yeah. And I, my, my buddy, who uh, you know lives in the Valley here, when he was in Lyons, Colorado, and I was in Fort Lupton, we were over at his house for dinner. And over dinner, he said, hey, bro, uh, you want some ducks? And I said, Sure. How many you got? I said, well, I think there's about six out there. Well, he had a tool shed and he was brooding these yeah. ducklings out there. By the time we're done with dinner, uh, he says, okay, well, let's go load up those ducks. So he grabs a cat carrier. We go out there and while he's grabbing these ducks and stuffing them in the cat ter- carrier, he starts telling me this crazy story about being in the jungles of Colombia and, and grilling a whole monkey over an open fire. And we're laughing and laughing. Boy, by the time I got home and let those ducks out, he shoved 19 of those things into that cat carrier. (laughs) (laughs) And so, you know, there's a gift. And then, like, he called me up one time. Hey, I've got a bunch of extra milk. He was running a a raw milk, uh, hand milk dairy business over there. Do you want to make some cheese? I said, great. Yeah, I'd love to. So I go get the milk. I take it back to my place. I make the cheese. When the cheese is ripe, I give him half. Well, now he gave me the gift of milk, which has a value. Well, with the the value add and the time and, and the craftsmanship and the cheese, that's a greater gift back to him. And then he gives me 19 ducks and so on and so on and so on to the point where it is now we're giving each other cows and, you know, um, building buildings for each other and things like that where it's not about the expectation of payment or compensation. It's about doing something good for your friends and loved ones and, and operating instead of a place of scarcity, you know, the entire default economy and default culture is based on scarcity. The money's based on debt. Everybody's in debt. And when you shift away from that 
into the mindset of abundance, it's like, well, produce a surplus and then enjoy the opportunity to give it away to somebody, Mm -hmm. to make somebody happy. And so that's, and really, if we want to be less dependent and less at the whim of the, the tides and changes of history, be in that state where you're not only self-sufficient, but community sufficient. And boy, if you have a bad year, a bunch of grasshoppers come in and eat all your stuff. Well, your, your buddy, you know, over the hill might've done a little better. And, you know, not only can we provide greater variety for each other, but we have that resilience and that stability that comes with a more complex uh, operation that's diversified and decentralized among a bunch of different farms. Yeah, you're right. Cause I think about like growing up in Pennsylvania where everybody did something, there was right. some barter that went on, but there was also a lot of just here, take it because right. when something's truly abundant, like, and it's, it's massively abundant, it stops being a commodity to be traded and it starts just being a thing to be shared. So, right. You know, when we found half a pickup truck bed full of mataki mushrooms, that wasn't so much the case because they had a real value. They're only right. seasonally available and people were willing to pay for them. So those all got like I remember my uncle and I, we drove around to like every bar he knew, walked in with a bag of them, put them on the bar top with a scale. And right. We were selling them like for 10 bucks a pound. And this is back in the 80s. Yeah. Um, but then, I mean, like our garden, I was literally sent up and down the road giving away produce. To, right. to all the members of the community and no one ever asked for anything in return for that. So I think right. that what I've always said is you want to end war, create abundance of everything that people need and you won't have any wars anymore because people killed each other over salt and pepper in the past. Right. Right. Nobody kills anybody for salt and pepper today because if you want salt and pepper, it's in every grocery store for next to no money. Right. So there's no need to fight over something that's readily available. And that's, that's right. just something that we haven't, I guess we've learned it, but we haven't learned it as a species. We've learned it as people, but not as persons, I guess, maybe is the way to put it. Yeah, I mean, it's it's all about culture, in my opinion. And, yeah. you know, if we can have a culture where the question is not, how can I possibly get my hands on enough food not to starve, and shift that to the question of, how am I going to get my neighbors to help me maximize all of these San Marzano tomatoes that are blowing up in my garden and get highest, best use out of them? Yeah. You know, for yeah. all of our benefits. What do we and, do with the food instead of how do we get the food? Right, right. And, you know, there's a, a, a marked difference between dealing with resource allocation in a voluntary situation versus an involuntary situation. In one, you have, you know, an agoristic anarchism. In the other, you have Marxist communism. Yeah. And, you know, the difference is coercion. In one of them, there are natural incentives. I was like, well, I have an incentive to give my buddy a bunch of tomatoes because maybe I won't put up enough salsa and I can turn to him in January and say, Hey, how much salsa did you, yeah, put up? Well, yeah. you know, whereas in, in the other system, it's like, well, if you don't work, then you go to the gulag and you starve, you know, yeah. a coercive incentive. So when we, when we get into this kind of abundance, we end up with surplus and then uh, we don't like, sometimes we have a lot of food and sometimes we don't, and we want food that we have when there's a lot of it. 
to still be there when there's not much of it coming in new. So if we get into food preservation and you were talking about making salsa, I guess, and canning it, what are some of the food uh, preservation techniques you're using? Because I know for chefs, when you start preserving food, you're actually getting an opportunity to put another layer of flavor right. into the final thing that you're going to eventually prepare. Right. Well, you know, canning is pretty huge in my food preservation tackle box. In this valley, particularly this year, because we had that wet winter, and even though the winter was long and it was wet and it was cold, our typical last frost is Mother's Day, mid-May. This year, our last frost was mid-April. And okay. so, you know, there are a lot of, of varieties that grow in the valley where they're hit and miss. For example, mm-hmm. we haven't had a cherry harvest that was worth a darn for five years. Well, this year, we're getting everything. Okay. Cherries, sour cherries, apricots, nectarines, peaches, apples, pears, the whole nine. So there will be a lot of, of fruit canning that happens. So with the the fruit and all the, the host of tomato products, so I'll do marinara salsa, barbecue sauce, ketchup, tomato paste, tomato juice, all of those things um, in the fall. I do a lot of bread and butter pickles because they're currency and, you know, the, uh, you know, canning of lard and, and things like that. When I process the chickens, I'll take all the necks and all the feet. Here's a little tip for your listeners out there. When you're plucking chickens, if you hold just the tips of those talons on two toes, when you're dunking them in the scalding bucket, when you throw them in the plucker, the feet will peel in the plucker. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So we take the feet, we take the necks, and they never even get frozen. They immediately get roasted, and I make a bunch of chicken stock, and then I'll pressure can that in quarts for, you know, an hour and 30 minutes or so, and then it's shelf-stable, ready to go. So I get all that put up. I make, you know, stock out all the venison, any of the the pork that we we harvest all that stock stacked up in the pantry render all the lard here's a good lard trick grind the fat put it in one of those stovetop or uh, countertop roasting pans those electric roasting pans oh yeah 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 and just warm enough to to get it to render out overnight then strain it off and then heat that fat up to 250 degrees now it's sterile it's even sure. sterile for, you know, sea botulinum. Take your canning jars, sterilize them in the oven like we used to do in the old days, 250 degrees for 15 minutes. Well, now you've got fat at 250, jars at 250, prep your lids as normal, fill your jars, cap them, put the rings on, no need to can, nothing. Yeah. They're good to go and yeah. shelf stable for a couple of years. So same way with the tallow and all that. So in addition to the canning, we have, you know, three small drop-in chest freezers that handle all of our meat. My buddy Jake, I was talking about, I scored a a 12 by 15 walk-in freezer form from a farm that got shut down in Boulder uh, several years back. So he's got a 20 below deep freeze walk-in up at his place. He's mostly a... uh, a grass-fed beef operation, so he needs the space up there. So I've got overflow up there. 
And then, you know, of course, the fermentations, the, the sauerkrauts and, and all those things. Uh, I have yet to get my root cellar in here on property, but that's uh, on, the, on the agenda for this season to get that root cellar in. And then I'll be able to put whole cabbages in there and elevate them through fermenting in the sauerkraut throughout the course of the year, as well as a bunch of the other vegetables that are in there. So I'm aiming toward a system that is as least reliant on electricity as possible, you know, an EMP proof lifestyle, if you yeah. will. Yeah. Get back to that 1850s mentality where, boy, if, if, you know, the, if it hit the fan and you had your grid down scenario and all of that, you'd hardly notice. Well, I can't charge my phone anymore, but I get more done. You know? yeah. yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, you know, when you're talking there about making the stock and the chicken feet, uh-huh. it, it, made, it gave me a good memory. I remember my Ukrainian grandmother, she used to get pissed when she'd buy chicken from the market and she didn't get the feet with it. She's right. like, the man stole the feet. He stole yeah. the feet because he knows you need the feet to make soup. It won't be right without the feet. Like, yeah. You know, she was old country Yuki. So, like, yeah. He's like, where's my feet? And, like, the dude's like, I don't have any idea where the feet from this <laughs> chicken are. <laughs> like, they don't come with feet. Like, you know, it's not, a, it was, you know, and it was kind of a point where some of the markets still had. You know, they had a, a meat cutter on staff that was really right. I'm not he wasn't just breaking some stuff apart. He was really a butcher, you know. Yeah. And some did. Yeah. And, and some didn't. And whichever one she went to that week, if it was the wrong one, God help the poor guy. Oh, yeah. Counter. Where's my feet? <laughs> I remember one time she was yelling at the guy and the guy didn't understand she meant the chicken's feet. She was saying my feet. And he thought she meant her feet. He was like, <laughs> oh, yeah, no, she's not like that. It's she wants to know where the chicken feet is. You know? They're under your ankles, ma'am. <laughs> <laughs> so um, how do you then maybe incorporate some of the seasonal eating into your, your, your cooking and gardening pr- process? So like things kind of sync up for what you, what you're going to do at any given time. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, really for us, you know, coming out of the winter, you know, winter is a lot of bacon, a lot of sourdough, a lot of butter, and fortunately, we have a farm just across the street from us called Flipside Farm. And so what they do now, you know, in our climate, it rarely gets below zero in the wintertime. And so they select cold hardy varieties of leafy greens. They have two hoop houses and they'll do their starts in August, transplant in late September and then cover everything with row cover inside of the hoop house. Okay, so you got to so, double. Okay, yeah. Yeah. So unheated hoop houses, and then all winter long they'll essentially just harvest leaves, and run their uh, you know their farm stand, and they've got a CSA, and they sell to a lot of local uh, grocery stores and things like that. So we've got good access to fresh greens all winter through them. Another one of those you know community specialization issues where we don't really have to run a system like that here to have those fresh greens, but we're mostly, you know, eating braised venison and green chili stew and things like that all winter. So when it gets into springtime, of course, the first thing to go 
the wild asparagus in my irrigation ditches and all around the marsh and everything just loaded with asparagus. Hmm. We start eating a lot of asparagus. In the marsh, there are millions of cattails. Now, that as a food plant is fascinating. You've got the shoots in the spring that are kind of like, you know, bamboo shoots mm-hmm. in, in flavor and texture. And then you get the pollen when they go to flower and the flower stalks are also edible, can be kind of eaten like little tiny green corn on the cob. And then the tuber has an amazing starch value. And so it's a three season, maybe four season uh, natural food crop in the area. And then, you know, it's the succession of things in the garden, the peas and the radishes come on and, and so the menu, of course, follows the garden sure. with everything that it's doing. And really my big, you know, um, work right now is to develop a cuisine that is regionally specific to my little microclimate. And so the things that grow on my farm, you know, you, uh, when you're, you're thinking about designing a permaculture homestead, before you're on site, you know, you have all these visions of, okay, I want a food forest that's got pawpaws and this and, yeah. you know, some apples and strawberries and raspberries and, and all these things. And, you know, trying to impose your will and your palate onto the landscape. And, you know, that old advice that's so hard to follow, live on your place for a year before you install your system is really strong and powerful advice. In this case, I've got a Creek that, you know, runs actually right behind the house here. And in that little draw, there is already basically every square foot is occupied by native plants and things that have, uh, you know, populated themselves into that native polyculture And so I've got a lot of edible foods that, you know, in the native tradition were the staples of the diet, but they don't necessarily fit in to the palate that most folks have. Mm -hmm. And so things like the three-leaf sumac berry. Have you ever run across that one? I am very familiar with sumac, but mainly um, staghorn and smooth are the varieties I've had. So I'm not right. sure if that's a common name for one of those or not. Yeah, I but think I it's love a, sumac. The berries are it's it's nature's vitamin C and pink lemonade. I mean, it's right, right. So I mean, the flavor of the berry just raw on this one. They also call it skunk bush or or medicine bush. Is is a bit tannic and kind mm. of off putting. But, yeah, if you just help it out a little bit, cook it with a little bit of sugar and that sort of thing, well, it, it, yeah, it's, uh, it's a great I'm just thinking where you are, like trout are everywhere. So trout, that, and dill. Oh, yeah. Right? I mean, like. Oh, yeah. Like. Yeah, to get that out. <laughs> yeah, for sure. For sure. So we've got that three-leaf sumac, the uh, Navajo called that chin-chin, that berry. Um, and we've got buffalo berry, we've got service berry, we've got choke cherry, we've got 
uh, gamble oak that put off a huge mass fall of acorns in the fall. And so, you know, not only being conscious of the ecosystem that already exists and adapting a cuisine to match it, but also figuring out how to weave, you know, my livestock in and out of those systems. For example, um, I'll probably be carrying one pig in the fall and with a single polyline, I can incorporate a fairly large area and put a pig in there to acorn finish on everything that falls off those oaks. And that's what they do, you know, in Spain to get that really nice ham is finish them on acorns. So I can run the pigs through that. And so, yeah, it's, it's really um, a matter of following the seasons and, and trying to get to know and familiarize myself with the wild foods while I'm establishing, you know, the other things that I that I really like, the choice cultivars of, of fruit and nut trees and that sort of thing. Awesome. I have the sumac you mentioned up on the uh, screen right now for those with the video. Um, yeah. You taught me about a plant. This this plant is not related to what we call sumac here in, in uh -huh. the country. This is a totally different uh, plant with a totally different berry form. The stuff I'm talking about has real little tiny berries and clumps. Oh, yeah. uh, it's more like cone shape. So uh -huh. a lot of people think it's poison sumac. It's not poison at all. Right. It's not white. It's not down. It's red. It's up. Um, <laughs> I, I'm going to have to learn more about this because I've yeah, it is all over the place here. Really? Yeah. That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. Like, and then, you know, you have people like they want that. And like I do now, um, and right. maybe it won't do well in my climate and it probably won't. And they, they forget that they have their own things like that, that, you know, you'd like to grow in Colorado, but it ain't happened in that direction either. You know? so, right. Right. So yeah, I, I, I am coming to the realization that it's not me who needs to move the ecology around. Yeah. But, me that needs to move to, you know, harmonize with what's going on. Harmonize know? with the existing ecology. Right. Uh, you've mentioned Elaine Ingham a couple of times in composting and also in your notes, I have stuff on biochar. Um, what role have composting and biochar played for you on your little farm? Well, my system with the compost, the first couple of years, you know, so I'm in my third season on this, on this property. Yeah. The first couple of years I was building compost with horse droppings that had dewormer in them as the nitrogen and chunky sawdust from the sawmill as the carbon. And so, you know, not only are you battling the half-life of the dewormer, but you're also dealing with a carbon source that is loath to break down. Mm-hmm. And I end up with a compost that's super hydrophobic and, you know, is killing earthworms and, and that sort of thing. So uh, because I was still setting up infrastructure for those first couple of years, I was wintering my cows at a neighbor's farm. And so I didn't have that accumulation of hay litter and cow manure that I had, you know, been building a compost out of in my previous farm. And in that situation, I had no pasture. So I was feeding hay 365 and so building 100-yard piles of compost all the time. So this is the first season that I was able to keep the cow on, on farm. 
And so, yeah, that makes a tremendous mat. And like Joel Salatin, you know, he throws the corn in there over the winter and lets the pigs go in there and aerate it and all that. Well, I'm not quite that fancy. I just scoop it all up front end loader of the tractor and then essentially run it through a Berkeley style, you know, a turning schedule uh-huh. and then tarp it and leave it until the next spring. Now, when I get to the end of that Berkeley style, I'll do a biochar burn where all, you know, all these trees and everything that's going on, I end up with a lot of down branches and, and just loose slash that's easy to collect. Mm-hmm. And I found that, you know, so you can see behind me, I've got this uh, cottonwood that's laying down that, that fell well, yeah. all over the property. Uh-huh. And the, after about six months of being down, Boy, that bark will fall off in huge slabs. Gotcha. Yeah. What I'll do is I'll pile up all my sticks in a cone, and then I'll skin it with those slabs of cottonwood bark and get a nest of the fluff that's inside of the cottonwood bark and some kindling, put that on top of that cone. Well, now you got a tea lud. It's sure. a top lit updraft kiln, and so – light that up and boy i get a a pretty nice charcoal on the other end of that burn and then just fold that into the compost while it sits there for a year and and conditions and you know it it's amazing what a leap that product will will give i used to do a lot of this i i've experimented with a lot of biochar approaches i built a retort at my old farm and you know it worked pretty well all the metal burned up in about three uses and at this point i'm i'm pretty sold on on the self-consuming tea lead approach mm. of, of just you know using the bark as the vessel yeah it makes a lot of sense too because there is a point where if you have enough material it doesn't have to be perfect and you don't have to get maximum yield you had to get rid of all this surplus waste anyway Right. And what you end up with is a perfectly good product. So you might as well. Right. Yeah. It's, it's that, it that or just slash burning, you know? Yeah. Going to yeah. nothing but ash. It's kind of yeah. like organized slash burning is what this is, right? You just right. Right. Slash. It's just, just putting it in a slightly different shape so that it, you know, has a function stack. And the other thing about this region, you know, once you're over here on the west side of that rain line, the soil goes from acidic to alkaline. Okay. So the native soil is running 8.5. Yeah. Here, which is brutal when you're trying oh, to grow. That's, that's way higher than even me. I'm like 7, 8. Yeah. Yeah. You kill so, for 7, 8. Everybody else is like 7, 8. Ah, I'm like, yeah, well, it could be yeah. worse. <laughs> yeah, it could be worse. It could be here. Yeah. So, I mean, that's another reason that the you know heavy compost dependent no-till system is important because you know over time i'll be able to drive that you know closer to seven yeah yeah absolutely um what about rotational grazing because you're doing that as well that has to have a massive impact on the land absolutely so one thing i noticed last year was a pretty dry year and I was doing some work for a buddy of mine, a former intern. He bought a little piece of property and put a yurt on it. But you can see my pasture from his place, and it's up okay. in elevation. So 
Eagle Valley and my pasture. And after two seasons of rotationally grazing the cows through it, you could obviously tell in the fall that my place was much greener, much longer than everything else. So, uh, you know, the, the situation over here, irrigation is critical. I mean, if, if something isn't irrigated, then it basically turns into dust mm-hmm. in this environment. And so I've got old irrigation rights from 1889 and a steady supply of water throughout the season that's in an open ditch running on the uphill side of my pasture. And I essentially just, you know, have marks in the pasture and put a dam in my ditch and flood into the pasture and then move the dam down, flood the next section. I got you. And an interesting challenge that I'm running into is that because the rotational grazing has improved the water infiltration in my pasture, I have a hard time getting across it now. Yeah. Because the water just soaks in in the first section that it gets to. Yeah. And it won't ride that mark all the way to the other end of the pasture. Mm. So my my plan to to solve that is to go in with swales about every 60 feet or so yeah. in the pasture and just be able to concentration flood that swale yeah. and then, you know, set about four gates in it that will all be at the same level and flood out simultaneously. Uh, it's only three acres, this pasture. Yeah. But every year and it, it has improved to the point where I'm potentially this season going to be able to carry all four of those cows year round on three acre pasture with the supplemental grazing of zones three and four and, and whatever into zone five, actually the place that is across the marsh from me is a a cottonwood forest along the river. Mm -hmm. A lot of good grazing there. You've got to cross a beaver dam to get to it, which is a little treacherous. Yes. that's how for a cow. <laughs> well, yeah, well, I mean, that's how the heifer goes over and visits her boyfriend next door yeah. is by going across that beaver dam. Okay. So my plan is to, you know, try to figure out a good way to, during the hot part of the year, put them out there underneath the big trees and just let them have at it. Makes milking a little bit more of a challenge. It means that uh, every morning is a bit of a, a hike and an adventure to, to get yeah. the milk. But that way... I keep them off the pasture. So at this time of year, we're getting into second cut where the alfalfa really blows up and we get the highest protein and feed value for the winter hay. Okay. So if I can keep them off it, then, you know, I need to put up about 250 bales to carry them through the winter. And if I can keep them off it for second cut and only graze half of it before third cut, I should get there. And so that's kind of a milestone to be health, hay self-sufficient on the farm. Oh, yeah, that's huge. That's that's when meat really starts to uh, pay for itself hardcore. Oh, well, you go to the grocery store and see what they want for a pound of organic butter right now. Yeah. And you've got a couple machines that turn grass into that. Yeah. Now you're living. Yeah. 
Yeah, that carry gold has gone up like three x since COVID started. That's oh ridiculous. That's a good inflation. That's not on the list of CPI inflation. Oh yeah, no, there's but for real inflation, that's the kind of stuff you should be tracking real inflation with. Right. We'll just swap that out of the basket and put that country crock in there. Country oh, crock. Yeah, I can't <laughs> believe it's not butter. I can. I can. <laughs> <laughs> when that commercial comes on. I can't believe it's not butter. I can. Um, <laughs> Can you talk maybe a little bit about how permaculture and all these things we're talking about contribute to sustainability and environmental conservation? Because what you're doing, if it keeps being done long enough, will will outlast you. I mean, right. there's there is that kind of forward thinking mindset that we need to get back to with all this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, my personal view on the environment and environmentalism is that there is a myopic framing of the problem that is limited to atmospheric CO2 and ignores the far more pressing issues that we have going on. So, um, you know, personally, I don't think the, uh, the concentration of CO2 in the atmosphere is of grave concern. I'm far more concerned about topsoil loss and invertebrate collapse and aquifer depletion. And so, you know, the solutions that are required for those problems, i.e. no-till farming methods, rotational grazing, so we can get the soil back to a place where it will infiltrate water and recharge aquifers and eliminate topsoil runoff and eliminate the need for the addition of nitrogen fertilizers that cause dead zones in the ocean and eliminate the need for pesticides like atrazine and glyphosate and all of that. All of those problems are solved with these methods and techniques, which also happen to sequester an enormous amount of carbon in the soil. So, you know, that pet problem is solved by addressing the actual problems. The difficulty and the challenge is that it cannot be um, capitalized on for profit for the parasite class. So, mm. you know, one problem solution is eat bugs and pay more taxes so the government can fix the weather. And the other is treat the soil better so that you're eating better food and you're solving all these problems at the same time. So, you know, the way I look at things and the way I prioritize my decision making is about, okay, yes, can I do this without the distributed supply chain? And so I think about things like, okay, well, how can I grow enough grain to feed my meat birds and not have to bring feed in as an input to the farm? And let them self-harvest it out there. So maybe I run them all in the fall and I just grow out the place where I graze them in oats and barley and millet and whatever else and just supplement with the, the you know, clabbered milk from the cows and, you know, duckweed. I, I have a duckweed generating factory that covers 12 acres of the farm. I just need to figure out a, an efficient way to harvest that to feed it out. Mm -hmm. You know, and and develop systems that, you know, make the farm more self-sufficient, 
But yes, absolutely put together a, a permaculture design that will perpetuate. And it's kind of interesting in this valley because fruit has been grown here for 140 years or so. And so a lot of the, the things that spontaneously pop up, I mean, if the bear takes a dump outside the house and he's got, you know, 27 peach pits and his scat, well, you know, now there are peach trees popping up all over the place. And it's, it's interesting to see a system where it is already in a way in that self expansive uh, mode, that self expansive phase where the plantings and the species are spreading out and naturalizing and all finding their own little, little micro niche in the system. Sure. That's awesome, man. So can you maybe talk a little bit about like how the concept of permaculture affects like how you might design your own kitchen space or lay out your kitchen or something like that? Because as a guy that actually was a professional, I know that some thought goes into kitchen setup and what have you. Uh, yeah. And I mean, it kind of ties right into that. We always talk about design zones, one, two, three, four, five, you know, and we kind of forget sometimes that zone zero is the inside of where we dwell and it's a whole, right. it's a whole part of things. And then kind of the heart of the heart in a home is the kitchen. Right. Well, so that's uh, very challenging to me at the present because mm. as a chef, boy, you know, the, the workspace that I'm most uh, dependent on is that kitchen workspace. Now, in our little cottage here, it was not designed to be the main house. It's, it's basically a tiny house that moves us from, you know, through the three phases of property development, which we refer to as phase one is camping. Whether you're in an RV or you're living in a tent or whatever on bare land, you're camping. Then once you have some sort of permanent shelter over your head, well, now you're pioneering. And then once you start to have your animal paddocks and whatnot installed, well, you're homesteading now. So we're in the homesteading phase, but my kitchen in this building is literally a closet that I converted into an efficiency kitchen. So I've got a three ring gas cooktop, a dormer fridge, and about two and a half feet of counter space. And then, you know, this uh, this barn door back here is my mechanical room and pantry. So I've got just enough shelf space in there to keep all my canned goods that can't freeze. But a lot of my cooking happens outside. So when I'm making sourdough, I'm doing it on the gas grill on a couple of uh, refractory brick splits in a Dutch oven. And really, from the permaculture perspective, I would love to have a wood-fired outdoor kitchen. So your cob pizza oven, a couple of rocket burners that you can just run on the, on the same twigs that fall out of the trees and all that, maybe an in-ground refrigerator, that sort of thing. And again, going back to that, okay, well, let's, let's stay in the annualized solar budget and concentrate on things that we can do ourselves. I'd also love to to build a, an in-ground biodigester adjacent to that outdoor kitchen so I could have methane to run a gas cooktop. And so I'm trying to figure out the perfect placement for, for this outdoor space. But 
you know, if I can put together a kitchen along those terms, well, not only does it make sense in the long run, but it's also a, a novelty that could be an income stream to do on farm, you know, farm to table dinners, zero food miles, zero fossil fuel dinners. You know, yeah. people will buy that. And I'm, I'm kind of right between Aspen and Telluride. Oh yeah. And so another income stream thought I've had is to, you know, use natural building workshops to create a few cottages along this lovely little stream and along the river. And then I can invite chefs from Aspen, Telluride, wherever mm -hmm. to come for a, a geek out farm to table adventure. And they can all come and stay in the cottages and we'll kill a pig and we'll slaughter some chickens and we'll milk the cow. We'll make some cheese, make some butter, harvest things from the garden and then throw a farm table dinner after doing kind of a think tank intensive with a bunch uh -huh. of, of culinary creatives for the weekend. So that sounds pretty badass. I'd show up. You bet, man. I, w I wouldn't stay away. Um, all right. Do you have maybe like a really memorable dish that really captures the essence of permaculture or something that you really like, you know, you think about making it again all the time, even if you only make it once in a while, but it's just something that really captures this kind of essence that you're talking about through this whole interview from your location and your background. And, and well, you know, honestly, the, the simple things, you know, so we go back to these, these pastured chickens and this is one you'll probably like. So, when it's time for chicken dinner and, you know, there's just my wife and I here on the farm right now. So we'll pretty much eat the legs and the wings one night and then it's taco Tuesday with the breast the second. Mm -hmm. night. Sure. But so I played around with a lot of different methods for getting the most out of these chickens. My favorite approach right now. And so, you know, you've got this really delicious golden fat that the chickens get not only from being on grass and eating chlorophyll, but also getting sunshine on their skin, you know, and, and developing as a bird naturally would. So you've got this fine bird, milk fed. And what I like to do is part them out, take that big cast iron, you know, like a 12 inch cast iron, warm it up just enough to melt some cultured raw butter from the cows and then lay that bird in their skin side down. Yeah. And just cover the bottom of that pan. Salt, pepper, a few whole garlic cloves. Then, you know, go Scarborough Fair with the herbs, parsley, sage, rosemary, and thyme. Chop all that up, put it on the chickens, throw it on the grill, on the couple bricks, fairly high heat, and basically just let all of that skin caramelize in its own fat and butter and when you pull that out of the pan well now you've got like this chicken meat candy mm. on top of of the meat yeah. and it's a fairly simple dish but you pull all your chicken out well now you've got all this fat in the pan deglaze it with a little bit of brandy scrape everything off the pan and then take the heavy cream from the cows Pour a few glugs of that, and heavy cream will emulsify a tremendous amount of fat. 
Sure. And so all of the butter and all the chicken fat will be emulsified into this cream gravy that mm. is just the ultimate umami bomb. And man, pour that over that chicken, you're out the door. K Box asking spatchcock in a pan, not really because he's parted it out. Spatchcock is yeah. where we basically butterfly. Yeah. We're doing the breast. This is doing primarily the quarters that, that you're doing. This right. You could spatchcock it in the pan. If you don't want to yeah. go through the trouble to take it all down, you could absolutely just lay that skin flat out. You know, you're not going to have as as complete and even a caramelization of the skin with a spatchcock method, but that would certainly yeah. work. It would yeah. I like to do that once in a while too. But I've I'm with you. I prefer to part things out because the 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 gallus, the chicken, is not a flat animal. It's a very weird it's shape. Yeah. You know, you've got this this breast that's white meat that really wants to be cooked at one temperature. You got the dark meat that wants to be another. And right. within the breast, you got this big fat part, and then you got this little thin part, and then you yep. got the wing that's kind of like the breast, but it doesn't dry out as quick as the breast does, even though it's white. And you get this leg and it's got a big dumpy end. Like when you part it out, you get so much more control right. and you can pull different pieces at different times. Like those wings are nice and crisp and they're done. And if I keep cooking them, they're going to be annihilated. But those thighs can sit there for another couple minutes or what have you. Right. Right. I, I'm a big fan. I even I don't even do whole turkeys anymore at Thanksgiving. I, everybody likes to see the whole turkey come out. I break down breasts. I break down leg quarters. And I've been I've been preaching this for years, Jack, from you know the restaurant experience. So Thanksgiving dinner is one thing. Now do it for two hundred. So oh, how do you pull that off logistically? And it was born of that challenge that I developed my method, where okay, I bone out the breasts and I take the legs off, and then I tunnel bone the leg. So I leave all the meat intact and I start at the hip and then bone out the entire leg, cut out all those tendons that are down in that drumstick end, and then take that leg. I make a sourdough uh, grilled red onion sage stuffing. Oh, wow. Um, take the carcass, make my stock with that. That stock gets, gets used in the stuffing and in the gravy. So you mm -hmm. have it for that, which you wouldn't if you roasted the whole bird. Stuff that leg, tie it. Well, now that breast <laughs> and that leg are both going to cook in about 45 minutes in a 425-degree oven and yeah. both be perfect. Yeah. Because yeah. you got that bone out of there, and it's only about yay big around now. So yeah. you cook all that stuff, then you can hold that in your alto sham at 125 degrees for that throughout the entire service. And then when it's time to plate, you got no bones, so slice, slice, slice yeah, right, on the breast, slice, slice, slice on that leg, fan out the breast, fan out the leg on top of it. It's beautiful. Everything's cooked to perfection, and you've got you know your stock and your gravy and and all that good stuff. I'm gonna have to look at what the knife work is like on the on the legs because that sounds like a fantastic thing to do, but it also sounds like a pain in the ass. But it's oh, it's a pain in the ass without a doubt. I mean, getting those okay. tendons out of the bottom part is a bit of a drag. Yeah. It, you know, it's not that bad, though. You, you basically just slip the edge of your boning knife under that tendon, hold the bottom of it, and like you're skinning a fish. And yeah. they, they just come right out. They go in the stock. All the collagen, good things end up in your body. Awesome, man. So, hey, you want to tell people how they can learn more about you? You bet. Um, I, I do have a blog at RadicalGastronomy.com. 
and I'm not very active on that. I'm, you know, building this place out from scratch has, has got my time short and all that. What I'm focusing on right now is my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash radical gastronomy. And that is where I'm documenting all the natural building that I'm doing and all the animal systems and all of that. And so, you know, if people want to follow along with our adventure over here, there's plenty of contact content over there and a lot more coming. I just put up my tree planting video. I put in 650 trees this spring and talked a little bit about that. That uh, dust creep video right there just crossed uh, 350,000 views, I think. Oh, wow. Something like that. So That's a big deal. Yeah, it's banging. You guys need to uh, make sure you subscribe to his YouTube if you haven't already. Um, I noticed there's a video on there. I'm going to watch It's how I turned a yak heart into an umami bomb. So I'm... Uh, <laughs> I'm going to have to yak heart confit yak heart. That's not something you see every day. No, uh, you also have an Instagram. I don't know how much you post to it, but I do have the uh, handles. So I've made sure that your website, your YouTube channel and your Instagram will all be in the notes today. If you're watching the live sure. video folks right down there in the video notes, there'll be a link, get you over to the audio version, which will be there. If you're watching live about a half hour from when we wrap up, um, and then if you're watching it archived, it should be there and ready to go for you guys. And all the links for everything that uh, was talked about in today's show will be available either in the video notes below or over at the audio archive. Uh, dude, Bob, this was fun, man. Thanks for yeah. being with us today. It was a lot more fun of a topic than it was important what we talked about last time. But politics and fighting the state and all is not really not really a happy topic. But yeah. real quick as we wrap up, has there been any progress on y'all's end? Uh, on on that pushback no um okay. so that's the short answer yeah the uh the county is doing a line by line uh rewrite of the abhorrent code that we're all fighting against there's not a lot of hope that it will get us what we want yeah. and now the state is is trying to push through legislation that actually would emasculate the uh, county's power throughout the state and put all zoning under state control. And there are some things in that bill that are horrific. Um, the state wants to give themselves the right of first refusal for all real estate transactions oh, beyond just residential suburban homes. So yeah. if you're going to sell acreage or you're going to sell an apartment building, they want to have the opportunity to force you to sell it to them for under the market value mm -mm. so that they can solve the homeless problem. Oh, and, okay. Sure. Stealing your farm will solve the homeless problem in Denver. That makes a lot of sense. Only right. a freaking bureaucrat oh, yeah. could possibly say that with a straight face. Right. You know, and not want to kill themselves five minutes later for being the biggest damn liar on the planet. Right. Well, I mean, they give themselves a 90 day grace period. So say you want to sell your farm. Yeah. You put it on the market and you get an offer from a legitimate buyer. Well, sorry, you we've got to wait, wait got to wait the 90 days to see if the government wants to go for it. And even if he offered you 25% over market value, well, the state can sneak in at the 89th day and scoop it up for 25% under market value. Yeah, so 
because they're, you know, the, the county guys have slowed down on their work because they're waiting to see what the state guys are doing. And, you know, it, it pretty much ends up being in the same situation as everything else, Jack, where there really is no political solution. It, that's that, that's what makes me think of the meme of the founders with Washington saying me and me and my homies would have been stacking bodies by now. Right. Like, right. Like right. there's a point you're, you're going too far and I don't know where it is. I think we're already past it, but there's like a point where it's not only too far. It's the point where people start to get really pissed and start using um, let us say alternative methods of pushing back so that right. we don't well, get kicked off YouTube today. Right. <laughs> right. My, my hashtag that uh, I think is almost politically acceptable <laughs> is outgrow the need to be governed. So yeah. yeah. If, you take responsibility within your community for all the things you rely on government for and including agorism, you know, stop feeding the beast while you do it, but take responsibility for your poor and your elderly and your children and take responsibility for all of your systems that supply your needs. Well, at some point, if there are enough people who can get on board with that, way of behaving while the government is a vestige that will atrophy and fall off the vine if it isn't needed. Yeah. At least everything that you do toward that end is going to improve your life, whether times get tough or even if they don't. Couldn't have said it better myself. Listen, I had a few questions through here that either you or I can answer depending on them. This one came before we even started. It's not really directly related to our show, but we both have a lot of animals that produce things out of their butt that we eat. Uh, so chicken laying on a lot of eggs uh, on uh, gently pe uh, getting pecked on by other chickens. So basically you got a chicken being bullied. It sounds like a broody bird maybe, huh? Yeah, and she won't go and the other birds are pecking at her. One of the things I can tell you guys is whenever you have a chicken that starts getting pecked on, if she gets to the point where they actually expose the skin, then it won't stop. Because the birds key in on that wound. And at that point, you need to separate that bird until that fully grows back in. So if that's yeah. already, if that's happening, then you need to get the bird apart. If it's just a little bit of like pecking at each other, but nobody's hurt and it's not chronic and constant, chickens have a pecking order. You know, there's just, right. that, that right. is the thing. But if she's broody and she won't leave and they're really beating her up. You need to move her. And I guess another thing is people need to understand, like, these birds go broody sometimes. You got to let them do something. They'll starve themselves sometimes, you know, or you, or you got to do something to break it. Like one of the ways I've been able to break it when I don't want more birds is I'll put them in a cage and I'll put them hell and gone from their house, like put them in jail for two or three days and feed them and water and take care of them. And then when you let them go and they go back, a lot of times they'll come off that brood. Uh, but anything else you got on birds that are being pecked on? Well, on, on the broodiness issue, my go-to to cure a broody chicken is dunk them in the water trough. <laughs> Just grab them by the neck and dunk them all the way in, and, boy, they're over it. They're over it. Okay, I'm going to try that. <laughs> something about the cold water, you know, it, it changes yeah. the body temperature and, and gets them out of that psychology. Okay. So if you've got a chicken that's being abused, yes, absolutely, once there's blood showing, they will – peck that thing to death and eat it if you do not get it out yeah, before it's healed. You know, I've seen some people use those little uh, chicken vests you can put on that protect the shoulders. Where they're they do work. They, I haven't work. tried them, but, you know, that's that's one they, thing. They work for me with 
birds that were being not really picked on, but way overbred. Right. Where that right. rooster just start pulling feathers out of their back and all, and you put that on him and it doesn't work for him anymore. And he goes and bothers somebody else. That, that's right. what that's right. worked for. But you gotta, you gotta do something to protect those areas because, and it, even if it's not what caused it, once there is a wound on a bird, the other birds will just, Oh yeah. Once they see red, that's why they make all the, the water nipples and everything red. They, they right. key in on that red hard. Right, um, right. I'm trying to read with this. Okay. I have reclaimed my backyard in the past two years because of very wet weather in South Carolina and I have mushrooms everywhere. Should I just mow them into the soil? I guess it depends on what kind they are. Usually when they're in a yard, they're those white ones called destroying angel and they'll kill the heck out of you. So it's a good sign for soil health as far as I'm concerned. And mow them is fine, whatever. I mean, I guess, it, what are your thoughts on that? Because if it's a good-to-eat mushroom, I ain't mowing nothing except my stomach with that mushroom. But Right. Most of them are either, you know, the destroying angel or in the category that we refer to around here as LBMs, yeah. little brown mushrooms, of yeah. which there are several hundred varieties, and uh, approximately two-thirds of them will kill you dead. Kill you dead, yeah. Yeah, so... Um, the fact that they're there in most cases is a good sign showing that you've got a mycelial net in the soil. Some varieties like the fairy rings and those sorts of things can cause damage to a lawn and be unsightly to the homeowners association and that sort of thing. <laughs> For the most part, I, I, you know, just let them run their cycle in a few days. They're going to spore out and turn into liquid. And I don't think they're a concern, really, you know, yeah. unless they're, they're doing damage. Yeah, I would agree with that. And that was somebody asked earlier about, like, transplanting mushrooms. Like, that's not a thing, and I don't want to do a show on mycology or whatever today. But right. a mushroom you think of is the fruit. It's not the – it's not – don't think of it as the plant, even though they're not even in the plant kingdom. The right. mycelium network is – but think of that like your grapevine, and then think of the mushroom like the grape. And that right. grape isn't going to last long. You're not going to transplant the fruit. Now, in the fruit is the seed, and then the mushroom is spores. Right. So if it hasn't spored out yet and you threw some crumbled mushroom into a place, you might infuse some of the spore, but you can't transplant a mushroom. Uh, and, yeah, yeah that's the big thing. When you see mushrooms somewhere, mostly you don't have to worry about if you don't want them around, they won't be around for that long. With the exception yeah. of some of the things that grow like on the sides of trees and stuff like turkey tail and all those will stick around a long time. And yeah, I mean, I I uh, have this spring inoculated six different species into various logs here on the farm. And uh, in the past, you know, it's really tricky to to grow mushrooms intentionally in the arid climate. We get 15 inches of rain a year and humidity runs around 35, 40 percent most of the time. So tricky. But on this farm, I've got plenty of, of wood to inoculate. And so I went in with shiitakes, pearl oysters, blue oysters, reishis, turkey tail, and lion's mm. mane. Oh, and wow. Because I've got the creek right here, too. Yeah. Right now I'm, I'm incubating them underneath the lilac bushes close to the garden so I can water them through the course of the summer. And then in the fall, I'll move them down by the creek so that when I want to force fruit them, I can just drop them into the creek and soak creek. them for 24 hours and then shock them and then bloop, they'll fruit out for me. Awesome. The, the best approach, uh, and talk about stacking functions, I did some raised beds at the last farm where 
essentially I just do an outline of oyster mushrooms and cottonwood logs, fill it with uh, compost, plant in perennial flower varieties, and then mulch the snot of it and just leave like 25% of that bark showing on those logs. Mm. And I wouldn't have to force fruit them or water them or anything. Just in watering the flowers, that would keep them wet enough. And both in the spring and in the fall, I would have magnificent flushes of oyster mushrooms all the way around that flower garden. And, boy, it's nice on on the gram. (laughs) You know, I think that uh, they're one of the most underrated mushrooms. Yeah. The oysters. I mean, like everybody shiitake, everybody mataki, everybody chanterelle and, and morals. And I, they're all great. Uh, I'm yeah. not even saying that it's as good. I'm saying that it's it's its own thing. And it's probably on the same level because I think taste is a preferential personal thing anyway. And yeah. oysters just they're meaty and you can do so much with them. I mean, right. Seth is asking here about uh, shooting raccoons and possums in the yard. Uh, First of all, never shoot possums. They eat ticks. They don't carry rabies. They're your friend. Raccoons, I have long had a kill-on-sight order standing. (laughs) Um, However, uh, just a few days ago, my uh, border collie, she killed three baby raccoons about this big or so, and then a fourth one. Uh, my wife was able to get to before uh, the the dog did. And for a while there, I thought I might have to be a raccoon dad. Oh, but, no. uh, she was able to reintroduce it back to the mother. So okay. I do not feed them to the pigs. But right now in my compost heap, there are five dead baby raccoons, one baby beaver and two pack rats. <laughs> and so I basically just, you know, everything back. Yeah, take about a foot out of the compost, throw them in there, cover it up. And, you know, by the time that that sits there over the course of the winter, after I've done my Berkeley turns on it, I just let it sit there. And so I don't have to dig into a pocket of rotting raccoon. I just let the compost eat them, and they're a great source of nitrogen and and good to have in there. Yeah, I wouldn't feed raccoons to pigs because trichinosis, and I'm not going to feed a thing that can carry trichinosis to a thing that can be infected with trichinosis. Right. I know the risk is actually a lot lower than in people's heads, but to me, like, raccoons are not, are not food for pigs. They'll eat them. I just right. don't think it's the way to go. Yeah, um, yeah. I will eat raccoon, though. <laughs> yeah, know. it's a little greasy. It's a little yeah. greasy, but there's a lot of prep that makes a raccoon palatable. Yeah, there's yeah. Uh, there's glands in the pits of the front and rear arms that lower on the back leg and right in the armpit on the front, and those need to be removed. And there's some other things, but yeah, we won't get into how to cook a raccoon today. One that's more question, show. and we'll yeah, that's a whole different show. Raccoon <laughs> for dinner. Uh, hey, 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 Alabama was asking about biochar and saying, could you take small branches, pine cones, burn them in the grill, put them in the compost? You can. Uh, if you live where uh, where Bob does, you might even want to because you've made ash, not biochar, and you're going to help lower pH. If you're somewhere where you're already pretty acidic, you're really going to lower pH and you probably don't want to use that. Uh, that's, a, that's an ash, not a biochar. And Ash also has some nutrient uh, hit to it, especially uh, potassium. Um, So it's not that it's not a good thing. It's just that's not what we were talking about. And I'll remind folks, if you are new to biochar and you want to learn more, 
I have a whole page on the site that's nothing but all my episodes I've ever done on it uh, and every resource I could find on it. And I did an almost two and a half hour seminar on it that's available on that page for free. And it's the survivalpodcast.com slash biochar. Um, I don't have a lot of experience using ash. Uh, you probably don't either with your pH. Um, well, not necessarily for that. I mean, I can't add fresh ash to my garden because it just makes my alkalinity problem worse. Yes. But I do have a video on the YouTube channel about using wood ash to nixtamalize field corn to make masa. Mm. So mm. in a nutshell, the, you know, the ancient American relationship with corn, wood ash or lime were used to essentially slow cook and uh, soak the grain in an alkaline solution, which makes the B vitamins bioavailable into the corn, which prevents you from getting pellagra of eating a corn heavy diet that has not been processed. So yeah. when corn was exported to Europe, the plant was exported, but the cultural appropriately use of it was not because it was just dumb savages, you know, whatever. Yeah. What do they know? Yeah, what do they know? So, um, how not to die. <laughs> right. So, if you want to get the mineral value out of the wood ash, which is quite high, but you've got an alkaline situation or you're using a pine or something like that that could be acidic in your, in your circumstance, you can percolate water through it and make lye water, which you right. can then reduce down to get sodium hydroxide, which is lye, which you can then use to clean your drains and make soap and all of these other things. And then you've changed the pH of the ash and you could add that to compost or top dress gardens in an alkaline environment with it. Or you can use uh, that lye water to nixtamalize corn. And I guarantee that wood ash nixtamalized corn makes far better tortillas, tamales, mm -hmm. uh, arepas, whatever you want to do then that conventional moss mix you just get in the store. Yeah. Yeah. Well, hey, man, I've enjoyed it today. I wanted to share one more thing before you left because I, this just came in while we were doing this, and I thought it was a pretty good laugh. Um, so sign out in front of a restaurant, actually a bar. <laughs> and for those that aren't on the video, it says soup of the day, and there's a picture of a glass with ice and some sort of liquid, and it drawn with chalk for the non uh, visually enabled here. And uh, it says whiskey with H2O croutons is the soup of the day. And <laughs> I just thought that was really synchronetic that, you know, that came up while we were chatting about, of all things, cooking and radical right. gastronomy, which is your site. And again, people should get on by uh, that website. And definitely, uh, I'd say right now, given the activity level, get on his YouTube, guys. Get on his YouTube. Uh, subscribe to his channel, click on the alerts. If you don't click on the alerts, you'll probably never see anything he does because uh, that's how YouTube is. YouTube right. definitely seems to wait away from people like us for some reason. Um, and uh, But I have links again to all of that in the show notes today. So, Bob, thanks for being with us today. You bet, Jack. All right, guys, real quick before I sign off fully, wanted to remind you guys you can help support the show and the work that we do by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. 
That's T-S-P-A-Z-T-Spaz.com. You'll find everything that I've reviewed in the T-Spaz catalog over about five years there. It's all stuff I own, I use, or I wouldn't recommend it. It's also stuff that I would buy again. And occasionally I can find a better thing and I leave the old listing up and say, don't buy this one. Here's the new one. That's just the way we've been doing things a long time. And then I have some things that they just keep coming back around over and over again because they're so damn useful. Uh, and this one is the number one selling item this year. It was the number one selling item. That's not by total dollars, but total quantity of units for last year. And it was like number two for the year before that. We just sell the hell out of these things. And it's because, again, they're so damn useful. It is, and then when they go on sale, that's when we really sell them. Uh, they're on sale for 50% off today. Uh, they're about 10 bucks. And what it is is a six outlet wall mount surge protector. What it has is you take this and plug it into any standard uh, duplex outlet. It turns it into a six flex outlet. So you can now plug six different things into it. But it also has two integrated USB ports that allow you to charge your devices without an adapter. Any standard USB other end obviously is device dependent. You, you have your own cables. And I have installed these in my kitchen, for instance. So when I'm listening to music off of my phone and I just plug the phone in, it's sitting there and I, I can still plug in my, you know, my appliances and stuff like this. I've got one in the living room and I've got one in, uh, the, my office. And it just, like I said, it just takes this duplex outlet and lets you do so much more with it. And, uh, it's a, it's a zero beer installation. You take the faceplate off. Uh, you take the screw out, pull the faceplate off, plug this thing straight into the outlet, and they give you a longer screw to go through to hold it. So when you pull it off out of the, you know, pull a plug out of it, it doesn't yank it out of the outlet. It's about a two seconds to install the Dadgon thing. Trust me, you can do it. It's electric, but if you can't install this, you probably shouldn't be using electricity at all. Uh, and again, it's on sale today. It's only about 10 bucks a unit. Number one selling item in the whole catalog. And remember, you can help me out. And support my work, even if you don't buy stuff I, uh, I've reviewed. If you just start your online shopping at tspaz.com, you'll see a link to uh, to get on over and, and, and find everything. It's a, a feature on Amazon that day. If you start that way, well, you help us out no matter what you eventually buy. And you're probably going to buy something like that the next month. So when you do, just tspaz.com first. Also consider becoming a member of the MSB, Member Support Brigade. You do that, you get discounts that more than cover the cost of your membership. Uh, like I said, our, it's one of our sponsors today alone. Butcher Box is $120 a year in discounts on a $50 membership. That's a pretty easy spending decision to make right there. With that, I appreciate you guys. Uh, we'll be doing actually an episode of Bitcoin Breakout tomorrow. Haven't talked about Bitcoin in a while. Uh, Bitcoin Breakout side of the feed is getting a little lonely over there. So we're gonna, we're gonna just talk some general stuff about Bitcoin being one of the best choices there is right now to preserve wealth, wealth and to build wealth. And we're going to dig into the difference between preserving and building wealth and earning wealth, right? And people trying to get rich versus build wealth and protect the wealth as they build it across time and space. So that'll be a good episode tomorrow and uh, expert panel Q&A show on Friday. And with that, guys, I'm going to sign off. Thank you so much for being with us today. And, um, you know, before you go, do what Ernie's saying here. Hit the like button on this video. If you watched it, if you got anything out of it, just a little click before you go will help us out. And if you're not subscribed to us, subscribe. If you are subscribed, make sure you got the bell rang. I hear from people all the time. I didn't even know you're doing live streams every day. You should be getting an alert. You know how YouTube is. We talked about that. So I'll catch you guys next time. Jack Spirico with another episode of the Survival Podcast. 
helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Are they going to bail you out or just run you around? They said you should have a house the American way. A dollar down, a dollar a month, and you never have to pay. Show you a better way